Section 23 of the Medici, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. The Medici, Volume 1, by G.F. Young. Everyone who is conversant with a sportsman's life will feel how these writings of Lorenzo call up scene after scene which has come before his own eyes in the wildlife of the mountains, how he is brought in sympathy with the writer, and how none but a man who was an ardent lover of nature, of animals, and of the country people could observe and write like this. But no picture of Lorenzo the Magnificent would be complete without notice of that brilliant inner circle of literary men who were his closest friends. Among these, the chief were Polizian, who, before he was eighteen, was already renowned for his translation of the Iliad into Latin. At twenty-six, was lecturing to students from all countries in Europe on the Greek and Latin classics, and who, though he died at thirty-nine, was the greatest poet of his time. Maxilio Ficino, who, born in 1433 and trained by Cosimo Pater Patria, translated Plato and many other works of the ancient writers into Latin, and became head of the Platonic Academy. Luigi Pulci, who celebrated epic poem Il Morgante Maggiore, is said to have been written at the request of Lucrezia Tournabuoni, Lorenzo's mother, and Pico, Count of Mirandola, the most brilliant of the whole band, and celebrated throughout Europe, young, handsome, clever, lofty in character, with graceful bearing and golden hair, knowing 22 languages, including Latin, Hebrew, Arabic, and Chaldee, and whose many attainments were the marvel of mankind. He was the most distinguished literary man of the age. Polizian calls him the phoenix who rested in the laurel, Lorenzo. To him, we are told, all knowledge and all religions were a revelation of God. Savonarola revered his memory, and in his triumphus Curis, written after Pico's death, declares that by reason of his loftiness of intellect and the sublimity of his doctrine, he should be numbered among the miracles of God and nature. Sir Thomas More translated his letters and held him to be a saint. Lorenzo's two closest friends, Polizian and Pico della Mirandola, both died soon after him. Polizian at the age of 39, Pico at that of 31, both of them dying in 1494. To the above four must also be added the celebrated scholar Cristoforo Landino, who in his Disputations, first published about 1475, relates certain notable discussions of this group of brilliant intellects which took place when, on one occasion, they were gathered at Camal Doli. And Vespastiano da Bistici, the last of the master copyists and the first of modern booksellers, the largest employer of professional copyists in Europe, whose book, The Lives of Illustrious Men, is a mine of information regarding many important historical characters of the time, written by one who knew them personally. Such were some of the men who were the chief lights in that distinguished society which Lorenzo the Magnificent created around him, a literary coterie, probably the most brilliant in intellect, which has ever been gathered together at one time and place, 
a coterie whose mission was the spread of a new culture, and the effect of whose achievements was destined to be widely felt before another century was over. When we turn to the subject of art, we find Lorenzo's encouragement no less great, except in the difference created by the fact that he was not himself an artist. He more than doubled the art collections of the Medici Palace, and there was scarcely a contemporary painter or sculptor who was not assisted by him, while to his liberal patronage he added a universally valued critical knowledge. The unerring taste in art which the Medici as a family possessed is evidenced by the fact that no painter or sculptor of that age is to be found whose work is recognized now as of high excellence, yet who was not appreciated by the Medici. They never made a mistake in such matters. To this unerring taste on their part, Florence owes it that while the art collections of Rome accumulated by the popes are greater in quantity, those of Florence almost entirely the private collections of the Medici, surpassed those of Rome in quality. And no member of his family possessed this sound critical knowledge and infallible taste to so great a degree as Lorenzo the Magnificent. As had been the case with his father Piero, the leading artists of the day did most of their work for him, and nearly every work of eminence in painting or sculpture belonging to Lorenzo's time, remaining in Florence, was commissioned by him. Verrocchio did almost all his work for him. That sculptor's graceful tomb in San Lorenzo over Lorenzo's father and uncle, his bronze David, and his fountain of the boy with a dolphin were all executed for Lorenzo. Botticelli, he made his family painter as well as friend, and all the pictures of Botticelli's second period were painted for him. It was Lorenzo who caused Ghirlandaio's frescoes in Santa Maria Novella and Santa Trinita to be painted, and it was he who selected and sent Leonardo da Vinci to Milan to become Il Moro's great painter. Among others, he also gave commissions to Filippino Lippi, Signorelli, Baldovinetti, Benedetto de Maggiano, Andrea de Castagno, and Pola Giulio. The Medici Palace became, Simon says, a museum at that period unique in Europe considering the number and value of its art treasures, and these he made available to all young artists for purposes of study. There being at that time no school for sculpture, Lorenzo formed one in his garden near San Marco, collected their casts from many antique statues, placed the school in charge of Donatello's pupil, Bertoldo, and invited all young sculptors to study there. Among those who did were Lorenzo di Credi, Michelangelo, and many others afterwards famous. Vasari says that every young man who studied in this garden distinguished himself. Lorenzo had an eagle eye for detecting genius, and when Michelangelo was 15 years old, Lorenzo, chancing to see in his garden the mask of a grinning fawn which the boy had sculptured, made him an inmate of the Medici Palace, where he was treated as one of the family, and Vasari says was given an allowance of five ducats a month and resided there for four years, which, if the case, would mean until the Medici family were driven into exile in 1494. And it was an important time for such encouragement to art, for the Renaissance in art was now approaching the full blaze of its zenith. Every one of the great masters, except Tintoretto, was living in the time of Lorenzo the Magnificent, and although these, 
Luini, Fra Bartolo Mayo, Michelangelo, Giorgione, Titian, Palma Vecchio, Sodoma, Andreo del Sarto, and Raphael were as yet children. The following were all at work. Florocchio, Baracelli, Ghirlandaio, Perugino, Leonardo da Vinci, Filippino Lippi, and Lorenzo di Credi. Besides the Bellini and Carpaccio at Venice, Martegna and Matua, Francia at Bologna, and Pinturuccio at Perugia. Verrocchio, the true eye, whose real name was Andrea di Cione, was the chief pupil of Donatello. He executed many works for Lorenzo the Magnificent, but whether owing to the subsequent commotions when the Medici were driven out and their palace plundered, or other cause, very few of his works remain. Among these are his tomb of Giovanni and Piero de' Medici in San Lorenzo, his bronze statue of David, now in the Bargello Museum, the group of Christ and St. Thomas outside or San Michele, which has been said to be the most beautiful head of Christ ever executed, and his fountain, the boy with a dolphin, made for Lorenzo's villa at Carreggi, and now in the courtyard of the Palazzo Vecchio. One writer calls this statue the little boy who forever flits across the court while the dolphin struggles in his arms, whose pressure sends the water spurting from its nostrils. And Perkins says, like a sunbeam, which has found its way into these gloomy precincts, it brightens them by its presence. Verrocchio's last work was the splendid equestrian statue in bronze of Colleone in Venice, the second equestrian statue executed since the times of ancient Rome, and superior to that of Gattamelata by Donatello at Padua. Verrocchio only lived to complete the model in clay of both the horse and man, and the casting was completed by Leopardi. Still, less of Verrocchio's work as a painter remains. Besides the baptism of Christ, now in the Academia, only one other of his pictures is in existence, that of the Madonna adoring the infant child, attained by Ruskin in 1878 from the Manfredi Palace in Venice, where it had been apparently overlooked, and now in the Ruskin Museum at Sheffield. But Verrocchio's chief fame as a painter is that he was the master of Lorenzo di Credi and Leonardo da Vinci. Verrocchio died in 1488. When to the graver atmosphere of the time of Piero il Gattoso, there succeeded all the season the youthful joy and lightheartedness which marked the first nine years of the rule of Lorenzo the Magnificent. This change in the spirit of the time caused a corresponding change in Botticelli's painting, so that we find him painting in his second period all those pictures which are so permeated with the spirit of that time. To these have been added, in the latter half of this period of his painting, his fresco pictures at Rome. The chief pictures of Botticelli's second period are The Birth of Venus, Mars and Venus, The Return of Spring, and Palace, Subduing the Centaur, pictures in which contemporary events are memorialized under the symbolism of classic myths clothed in a 15th-century dress, 
We've already seen how the first three of these refer to the tournament of 1475, to the brighter era which Lorenzo had inaugurated, and to his work in the domain of literature, and how the fourth refers to the deliverance of Florence by Lorenzo from war and peril following the Patsy conspiracy. Soon after the war was ended, Botticelli was summoned in 1481 by Pope Sixtus to Rome to assist with Perugino and Ghirlandaio in painting the celebrated series of frescoes covering the walls of the newly erected Sistine Chapel. His portions of this work consist of the frescoes representing the early life of Moses, the destruction of Korah, the purification of the leper, the temptation of Christ, and the portraits of the seven martyred bishops of Rome. These important frescoes gained Botticelli added renown, and he returned to Florence with a great reputation. For the next few years, he was, in consequence, in great request among the owners of important villas near Florence, all desiring to have frescoes painted by him in their villas. Amongst others, he painted at this time for Lorenzo Tornabuoni an important series of frescoes in the villa of the Tornabuoni family, now Villa Lemmi at Rifredi, representing events in the history of the family. Also, a series of frescoes in the Villa of Castello, painted for Giovanni di Piero Francesco of the younger branch of the Medici family. Then came the death of Lorenzo the Magnificent, and the expulsion shortly afterwards of the Medici, and Botticelli found himself in a Florence, the whole atmosphere of which was completely changed under the influence of Savonarola. So again, Botticelli's style changes. And we have the pictures of his third period, which will best be considered in connection with the events which caused the entire change in the life of Florence. As in Cosmo's day, so also was it in that of Lorenzo. There could scarcely be a greater contrast than exists between the two chief painters of his time, Botticelli and Ghirlandaio. The former so full of that spirit of speaking to the mind through the eye that every one of his pictures is replete with deep and original thoughts, the latter absolutely without a vestige of this power. Gerlandio, though his drawing and coloring are perfect, is constantly called commonplace and prosaic, while it has even been said of him, notwithstanding all his powers of technique, that he is without the art faculty. And this feeling regarding his work is undoubtedly caused by this entire absence in him of imagination and originality of thought. Thus, in his pictures, we find our attention ever drawn to the accessories of the subject, rather than to the subject itself. While all such accessories, he is a most careful and prosaically accurate delineator. But each of the great masters has his own excellence, and Gerlandio's lies in this very direction. Ruskin, being noticeably without the historic faculty, could see no excellence in Gerlandio, and severely condemns his work on all occasions, calling it the mere handicraft of the mechanic. But those who are interested in what the men and women of this time in Florence looked like can forgive Gerlandio his want of the art faculty for the sake of the results on the historic side. Results which, had he not given them to us, we should have looked for in vain elsewhere. Gerlandio's want of originality led him to be a most careful copyist in every direction to which he turned his powers, and, as he introduced into his pictures on religious subjects, representations of the persons of note around him, carried out with a careful accuracy which rendered him quite incapable of flattering them, 
Together with many details of everyday life in Florence, we obtain from him a valuable record of the appearance and manner of life of men and women of the time of Lorenzo the Magnificent. In this way, Ghirlandaio gives us, in his frescoes in the choir of Santa Maria Novella, portraits of Polizian, Marsilio Ficini, Cristoforo Landino, and Demetrius. Chalcondylus, of the painters Baldo Vinetti, Maina Ardi, Gerlando himself, and his brother, of the bankers Sassetti and Ridolfi, and the members of the Torna Buoni family, of the reigning Florentine beauty of the day, Giovanna Degli Albizzi, who in 1486 married Lorenzo Torna Buoni, of the well-known dealer in arms and armor, Niccolo Capara, and others. Again in his frescoes in the church of Santa Trinita, we have portraits of Maso Degli Albizzi, Palastrozzi, Anolo Accia Giuoli, and of Lorenzo himself. And in the church of Agnisanti, in his fresco of the Vespucci family, he has given us a portrait painted about 1474 of Amerigo Vespucci, who gave his name to America. Ghirlandaio's best picture is the Adoration of the Shepherds, painted for the Sassetti Chapel in Santa Trinita, and now in the Accademia della Bella Arti. Ghirlandaio died in 1494 and is buried in Santa Maria Novella. In Lorenzo's time, the four principal villas, villas possessed by the Medici, were the Villa Careggi, the Medici Villa at Fiesole, the Villa Caffagiolo, in the valley of the Mugello, originally built by Cosimo and largely added to by Lorenzo, and the villa at Poggio a Caiano, about 12 miles to the northwest of Florence, built by Lorenzo. End of section 23.